0: All right, if you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5, we are in this wonderful section of Galatians that Paul has given to us by the mercy of God, really, the fruit of the Spirit. We've been looking just uh, some introductory remarks, the fruit of the Spirit is, and I trust that you'll see the benefit of having spent so much time in our introductory remarks because now we begin this wonderful fruit. I'm very excited. We are done with the introductory remarks and we're ready to consider each of these fruits in in the order that Paul has laid them out love being of course the head of the list and for good reason love is the chief attribute of the Christian life everything in the faith should flow from love paul leaves no question that this is true with the grand opening declaration on the importance of love that we read Only moments ago from 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing." and if i give away all my possessions to charity if i surrender my body to that uh, so that i may may glory but do not have love it does me no good hmm. but as the as grand and as important as biblical love is for the christian church it sadly is grossly misunderstood and it needs to be clarified in the church since in view of love m- the view of love by many Christians has been influenced by the world, as you can imagine. In case you haven't noticed, love is a big deal in our culture. Everyone craves love in some form, in some degree, and has done some pretty outlandish things in order to obtain it. Our own country even experienced a sexual revolution in the 1960s that promoted love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Most of you remember that. But this love was nothing more than really a selfish immorality propelled by a feminist agenda, with the birth control pill as its greatest claim to fame. The interesting thing is that while love seems to be so important to everybody the world over, there's no universally accepted definition of love. Now, there was an attempt to define it back in 1956 in a song called Love is a Many Splendored Thing from the movie of the same title. So, what it offered was something like this It's, it's the April rose that only grows in the early spring. It's nature's way of giving a reason to be living, the golden crown that makes a man a king. Didn't, you didn't know that that's what love was. But that's what it was in 1956. Now, I know it doesn't do much doesn't do much for me either but neither do the attempts made today so the urban dictionary has 36 definitions of love here is just a few among them it is inexplainable yet incredibly strong feeling for someone having great chemistry or something to avoid if possible something that if returned will make you the happiest person in the world and make you Nothing, and, and make nothing else matter. Or here's a more medical one: a widespread incurable disease which is known to affect mind and sometimes the body. Symptoms may include affecting judgment, lightheadedness, eye watering, chest pains, and increased need to be with the person who infected you. If known as it's known as highly contagious and can be deadly. It's puzzling to think our culture, or the world for that matter, cannot define something as important as love with universal accuracy. Yet, if you examine how, how love that the world, the worldly, unsaved, totally depraved, sinful human heart, produces, it cannot help but notice certain common elements, common characteristics. Here are the most agreed upon, at least by we theologians. Love is uncontrollable. You cannot command it. It comes and goes on its own. It's something you can find, something you can lose, and it's something that you can fall in and out of. That's about it. What we consider this morning is not not a product of the depraved human heart, but rather a fruit of the Holy Spirit, God himself. This is biblical love and it's far different. And in our introduction, we have prepared, that has prepared us really for this truth. I'm excited to say that if the fruit of the Spirit is fruit that is found only in the Spirit, who imparts it only to those who are born again, then no one other than genuine Christians can produce it, and that goes for the fruit of love. Let's understand that Unbelievers cannot love as God calls the church to love. That's a strong implication of Galatians 5, and 23. True biblical love, which we'll, we'll define in, in a moment, is love that comes from God, has been displayed by God, and is possessed only by those who are known by God. There is no other way to look at it. Now that might come as a shock to some in the church since we all know non-Christians that love others passionately and perhaps have even loved us passionately and with an element of sacrifice. One thinks of a mother's love or a person who loves something so strongly that he's willing to make great sacrifices for it. So how do we account for this? Well, the answer is easy. You have to remember that we're talking about human beings. And all human beings are made in the image of God, even though their image has been terribly marred by the fall. And those who walk around with a fallen image still display all the God-given human characteristics that come under the intellect and the emotion. God created us all to think and feel, and non-Christians think and feel. However, a depraved fallen nature will not be able to produce thoughts, make observations, interpret those observations, and express emotion the way that it was originally intended to before the fall. What do you mean? An An unredeemed person's observations and interpretations of those observations are clouded. They're clouded by a darkened mind and can never be perfect. His feelings are the product of a sinful heart. Well, are you saying that non-Christians even experience emotion differently? That's hard to believe. Everyone knows sadness, whether they're Christians or not. Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the dead in Christ, so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind does, who have no hope. Well, Paul tells us here very clearly that Christians grieve differently from the rest of the world. Our grief is informed with God's truth that unbelievers do not have. And I might add that emotions are the byproduct of our thinking and behavior, as I'll prove to you in a moment. So if our thinking is from a redeemed mind, then we will produce emotion in a way that is in step with our new nature, our redeemed mind, right? That just makes sense. It stands to reason, then, that if a person is going to think, observe the world around him accurately, interpret those observations correctly, and express his emotion pleasingly before God, his nature would have to be changed. He would have to be recreated in the image of Christ, which is really what it means to be born again. Only the Christian has the mind of Christ, has a new nature, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the scriptures to inform his thought process and guide his behavior and his feelings. There is a big difference, beloved, a big difference you see between the way a believer loves and a way that an unbeliever loves. Any apparent similarities that we observe proves only that worldly love is at best a vestige of the real thing that was lost in the fall. Just as a Victorian house that cannot house people anymore and has been condemned gives hints through its decaying structure of the glory and magnificence it once had, so the person's fallen nature displays, at best, decaying vestiges of a perfect human being. The depraved heart has many ruins, and love is one of them. Now, God's love differs from the world's love in that it is infinitely better. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, in verses 7 to 11, Jesus compare, compares a godless person's practice of giving with God's practice. All right? Now, later in the study, in this study, I will argue that love is giving. At least that which is why I have chosen this passage to demonstrate God's love, even though it doesn't mention it, or the word love. For now, let's simply grant, okay, that that giving is a large part of biblical love. If that is the case, then Jesus says in verse 11, so if you, despite being wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Now this proves that God's love is infinitely better, no question about it. That's the comparison Jesus made. But I don't want you to mistake or make the mistake of thinking that God's love is better simply by degree. It's not accurate to say that God's love is simply more of the same love of the wicked. No, the difference here is not one of degree, but one of kind. This is God's love as opposed to man's love. That's why it's infinitely better. If a different, lo- It's a different love altogether, a supernatural love, because it's God's love. Uh, support for this comes really from the fact that we... Established uh, that we established already that this fruit that comes from the Spirit is only attainable through the Spirit. It's a divine love that can accomplish greater things then. So consider Jesus' explanation in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 47. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourself to be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers And sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? In this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expounds on the difference between God's love and the way the best of people in this world love. That would be the spiritual leaders of Israel. didn't get any better than them. He points, uh, he points us to the tradition, then, of these Pharisees when he says, you have heard that it was said. But I tell you. Now, the phrase, you have heard that it was said, you should know, is never, is never used in the New Testament to refer to the written law of God or any Bible passage. Consequently, the strongest or oh, I would say that I say it actually refers to the religious leaders' wrong interpretation of the law. So the strongest spiritually and the most moral, that is the religious leaders in Israel, got it wrong. You heard that it was said, referring to what they taught. But I say it's this over here. That's Jesus' point. Now, they didn't know God's love. They didn't teach God's love. And they did not exercise God's love. Their kind of love extended only to those who were lovable, deserving of their love, their family, and those who reciprocated their love. And that's the kind of love with which they loved. And it would appear from this context then that worldly love uh, contains a measure of selfishness and self-preservation. It is not in my best interest to love my enemy. In fact, that's silly. Why would I ever do such a thing? God's love, God's divine love, is of a far different kind in that it's never selfish, never self-seeking, never self-preserving. It's inconceivable for any unbeliever, you must admit, to think that he would love a complete stranger, much less an enemy, with the same intensity that he loves himself. But that's exactly what biblical love does. This is why love for an enemy is given as an illustration And it no doubt shocked Israel's religious leaders because it was so radical. No one can love this way. It's foolish. It's silly to entertain ever-loving someone who's trying to hurt you. But this is how God loves. Jesus died for his enemies, Romans 5, 6, of which you were one. I want to talk about that kind of love. The kind of love that that only those born again of the Holy Spirit possess. It's a major subject in the Bible and arguably the most important characteristic of the Christian life, the most important. It is the motivating force behind the faith. Paul says in Galatians 5.6 that the faith works through love, giving us the idea that love is the vehicle, the means through which a true and sincere faith works. No doubt... No doubt he learned this from Jesus who taught that our love for God must be the motivating force behind our obedience when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love is also the, 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 the sum of our faith. According to Jesus in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, loving God and loving neighbor as we ought is the sum of of the entire Old Testament, as well as the essence of Christianity. And love is also the one characteristic by which the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples, John 13, 35. They will know that you belong to me by the way you love each other. And Scripture tells us that God is the author of love when it says that God is love. Well, Needless to say, love is the ver- is very important to God, And it is the sheer fact that God is all about love that he imparts it and commands it of us together with the need we all have to practice it faithfully. All good reasons why we need to understand then what it is. and Where do we go for a biblical definition of love? Well, we don't go to the tabloid, certainly not there. Definitely not to Wikipedia. We don't Wanna waste our time asking Google or Siri either. Not even the dictionaries are helpful since they're constantly updated by cultural sensitivities and far removed from any Judeo-Christian influences. Old Merriam Webster, yeah, he'd roll over in his grave if he ever knew the meaning uh, of many words that had been changed and new bizarre entries. You see, these are the voices that people are so quick to attribute authority to and subscribe to, but they are far from absolute. The Bible is the only source of absolute truth in the area of godliness. I know you know I was going to say that. And since God is the author of love and mentions love in his holy word, it's there that we need to turn and learn about love. God has much to say about it. I cannot possibly say everything that the Bible teaches about love, today, or next week. I have at least seven truth statements, though, that, that shows just how God's love is, is different, a different kind of love than what, the wor- than what the world produces. And I think we have time for three. So let me begin. I didn't publish these in the bulletin. I'm sorry. You'll, you'll have to really be a student today and get your hands nimble. Number one, biblical love imitates the way God loves. If we're going to know anything about biblical love, we need to know about the love that God loves with. And biblical love imitates the way God loves. The idea that we Christians are to be imitators of God is firmly fixed in the New Testament. And we find it as a command in Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And it's not an unreasonable command for Christians either. Christians look like their parents, or children rather, look like their parents, so we Christians would look like our Heavenly Father. In fact, that's the line of reasoning that the Apostle John takes in his first epistle when he encourages congregation to walk worthy of God. 1 John 1, 5-7, John says, God is light and we have fellowship with him if we walk in the light as he is in the light so we're children of light and we will look like our father acting like the one who gave us birth to make is, makes good sense and in case there is any doubt about what john implies here he comes right out and says in 1st john 4:11 beloved if god is uh, god so loved us We also ought to love one another. In fact, Paul gives a similar command in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. If we belong to Christ, then we bear the spiritual genetics of our Lord that allows us to look like Him and want to act like Him. Paul uses this argument to call Ephesians to do just that in Ephesians 4.32. Beloved, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. That's how we're to do it. So let's put this idea of imitation into an axiom. All right, Those who belong to God are like Him and will act like Him. Those who belong to God are like Him and will act like Him. When it comes to love, then... If God is love, we show that we belong to God when we love as He loves. Very simple. This is why Jesus said in John 13, 35, that the world will know you, will know that you belong to me. By the way, you love each other. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Biblical love demonstrates that we are Christians because we love as Jesus loves I'll define how God loves you later, but let's understand the simple truth first. Biblical love is only biblical when it imitates God's love. We need to get that right. And that's the starting point. And, of course, that sets us up for the second truth statement. Second truth statement goes like this. Receiving God's love is prerequisite to practicing it. Receiving God's love is prerequisite to practicing it. Only those who are born again can love the way God loves. Remember, it's a fruit, right, of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Without Him, it's impossible to produce the fruit. And when it comes to love, no one can love God until he has first been loved by God in a saving way. In a saving way? Yes. There are basically two ways that God expresses love to humanity. One is in a general way, and that's what theologians call common grace. God gives his common grace. In Acts 14, 17, Paul explains to the unbelieving crowd in Lystra, God did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. These are unbelievers. He's witnessing to them. God extends to depraved humanity a measure of his grace in the form of rain and sun and food, protection from being wiped out by natural disasters, and so on. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5.45. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common, common grace. God's common grace is an act of his love. And it does more than just send rain on lawns and gardens of the depraved human being. By it, God restrains depraved humanity from being as bad as it could. Oh yeah, not every person acts as bad as his his depravity would allow, you see. Not everyone is a Hitler. God also gives depraved humanity the ability to make advancements in the area of of science and medicine and technology that benefit the populations of the world. God's common grace is the way God loves everyone in the world without exception. But there is another aspect of God's love that theologians refer to as saving love or effectual love. It's a love that effects or brings about salvation. It's the love that prompted him to save a people for himself. It's God's love that converts a person. Paul explains all about this kind of love in Romans 9 using the twin boys, Jacob and Esau, as examples in the classic Passage on divine election, Paul explains in verses 11 to 13, For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. those Those are stern words. And here we get the idea of what God's saving love is all about. The words love and hate in this context refer not so much to God's emotions as they do with God's act of choosing and rejecting. This is really the way we have to understand it. I would not say that God doesn't have emotion or express emotion. Um, This is a rather difficult doctrine to kind of qualify. But certainly in this context... Loving and hating refer more to choosing and rejecting. Why do I say that? Well, I'll get into the emotional aspect of love in just a moment. But for now, let's understand that Paul is not commenting on God's emotional state as if God were emotionally excited over Jacob and emotionally repulsed by Esau. No, Paul is telling us that God simply chose Jacob, the second born, to be to be his over the firstborn Esau. As I say, love and hate in this instance are better understood as choosing and rejecting. Well, are they used this way anywhere else in Scripture? As a matter of fact, they are. In Luke 14.26, Jesus uses love and hate this way. Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother... He cannot be my disciple. Hmm. Is Jesus advocating hating our parents? No, and we know this because he just spoke against murderous thoughts right before this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he was the biggest advocate of honoring parents. He's the author of the Fifth Commandment, too. Don't forget, honor your father and your mother. So what does Jesus mean when he says these words? Well, the context is about what it takes to be his disciple, right? And it takes 100% loyalty on the part of the disciple. And unless you are willing to put Jesus before those who are closest to you, your family, you're not worthy to be his disciple. He puts it this way for shock value. It's the strongest way, really, that he could communicate to us the importance of always putting him first. He's saying that every time that you are in a situation where you must honor your family's wishes or obey me, when the two would be contradictory, I must win out every time. That's not easy for a lot of people. Let me say that if a Christian of unsaved parents does this on a consistent basis, it may very well seem to his unsaved parents that he doesn't love them anymore. The truth is he does very much, but he loves Jesus more. Now with that understanding, we can return to Romans 9 and we see that God chose Jacob over Esau to be part of his elect people, not because Jacob was more worthy, that there was something likable about Jacob, that there wasn't about Esau. Jacob was a shady character, if you remember. You'll notice that Paul specifically mentions that God's election here was made long before these men were even born so that their actions would not factor in. Those whom God saved are just as deserving of his wrath as any unbeliever. Make no mistake about that which is why he has to save them. Salvation is God's choice, not man's. And more than this, salvation is the more specific way that God loves. And in this case, he loves not all without exception, but all without distinction. In this case, God loves savingly. God loves everyone in the world differently. All are on the receiving end of common grace, yes, while only an elect group come to know his saving love. Now, we don't have space to develop the saving love or this saving love any further, but suffice it to say that God directed his saving love to those that he would save before time began. And I'm referring to that precious doctrine of grace called foreknowledge, which is best understood as foreloving. to know in Scripture often means or refers to an intimate relationship. Adam knew his wife. And in election, God's foreknowledge is better understood as foreloving in eternity past. Everyone that he would save, and on that basis, he then predestined each to be part of his family. Now, coming back to our second truth, what we're saying is this, that one must receive God's love in order to practice it. If you're going to imitate God's love, you have to have received it first. His saving love. You have to be born again before you can practice biblical love. All right, two down. Number three. Biblical love loves God first and neighbor second. Hmm. What's this all about? We read in Matthew 22, 33 to 39 earlier, we read this, where Jesus summed up the law as loving God and loving neighbor. And it supports the truth we just made. One must have a love relationship with God if he's going to love God and love others the way God wants him to. You have to be loved in a saving way by God first before you can love the way he does. We got it. That truth is an implication of this text, and here's another one. Now that you have the ability to love God and neighbor the way you want, you must always love God more than your neighbor. That's what loving him first means in this context. In case you hadn't caught Jesus' emphasis in the order of these two commands... I draw your attention to verses 38 and 39 where Jesus stresses it. He said, this is the great and foremost commandment and the second is like it. So you have one and you have first and the second. The implication is clear. We must choose God over all else and everyone else, as we have argued earlier. When we're in a position to do that, then And only then will we love everyone in our little circles of life in a godly way. That is, as God would have us to love him or her. Here's how this works. If you love God the most, you will choose to serve and please him before you would anyone else. And also, by the way you please anyone else. Did you get that last part? You will love others only the way that God calls you to love them and not the way that they want you to love them. This is what it means to put God first in your relationships. Not easy. So you will want to know the ways in which God is pleased to have you love someone, whoever it is. And he tells us in his word, I should say to myself, if I love God, then I must love my neighbor, because that's what my first love would have me to do. And my first love has told me specifically how to love this person in his word, and so I must be quick about it. The Bible tells us how to love our spouse, which is different from the way we love our kids, which is different from the way we love our neighbors across the street, which is different from the way we love other Christians, which is different from the way we love our enemies and our church leadership, and so on. This is so important to grasp. Christians who miss this truth get themselves in all kinds of trouble. Let me give you an example, just one example. How do we love another Christian who is in sin and refuses to repent? Well, the world, and many Christians, sadly, would say, well, ignore the sin altogether and don't pester the persons between him and God. And we have no right to micromanage another person's life. So that's an easy sell, that one. His sin is between him and God. Just accept him as he is. Lots of Christian churches in America are like this, even advertising themselves as a safe place where no one judges you. Come as you are and be accepted. Now that might be one reason why they're so popular. I don't know. A more astute Christian goes a bit further and advises well. Well, we shouldn't ignore it, definitely point it out, but but leave it at that. I mean, maybe he doesn't know, so we just need to tell him. But his sin is between him and God, don't meddle. Be encouraging, tell him you'll pray for him, and keep up your fellowship with him. Now, there are variations to these examples. The bottom line, however, is what is called loving in these situations really is not biblical love at all. Because it's not the way God would have us show love to an unrepentant sinner. It's not loving to allow him to continue in sin without accountability. It's going to hurt himself. It's going to hurt others. God calls us rather to rebuke the sinner with a view of helping and counseling him to repentance with all gentleness and love and understanding and compassion. If he refuses to repent, God gave us church discipline which puts a halt on all normal fellowship until there is repentance. Church discipline is an act of love by the church. After all, God himself, he says, disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews 12. And if we're to love our fellow believers as God does, then necessary discipline is a part of that. And if we love God more than our brother, we'll love our brother not as he wants us to, but as God wants us to because, and being sure that what pleases God in this context is always in the best interest of our sinning brother. He might not look at it that way, but it is. It is. Beloved, if you want to love people properly, you need to make sure that your love relationship with God is solid, no question. No question at all, I would say 99% of all problems that we face in the Christian life, interpersonal relationships, is because we're, we're lacking in some way in our vertical love relationship with God. If that is solid and we're sold out to it, then we won't have any problems. You always need to consult God's word for direction as to how to love others, though, and whether they are our enemies or family and friends who annoy you or anyone in between that doesn't deserve your love. I would argue that Jesus loved even the Pharisees and if they had only listened to him they would have been saved. I think we can say that from a human point of view anyway, right? So what have we said so far? Love must imitate the way God loves if it is to be real biblical love and a person must experience God's love first before one can love that way and once he has, he must love God first before he can love his neighbor accurately. Pretty simple. Not complicated. Now, I opened our time together by pointing to the fact that many Christians, view their, their view of love has been influenced by the world and therefore grossly misunderstood. And I want to add now, grossly misapplied. I want to close with a warning to avoid another strong worldly influence on the way Christians practice the fruit of love. And it comes from a psychological view that the psychological world championed back in the 80s, 1980s, and interestingly enough, had abandoned by the 90s, but not before it became entrenched in the American public consciousness and is still alive and well today. Ooh, what is it? Yeah, it's the self-esteem paradigm. That's what it is. Hmm. And that is a fundamental part of the philosophy of the public school curricula and the interpersonal dynamics of corporate America. You've no doubt heard people say things like, well, she's, she just suffers from low self-esteem. Or you you don't want to hurt the boy's self-esteem. What this doctrine advocates exactly is that love of self is the secret of a successful life and relationships and that all one's problems can be traced back to a lack of self-esteem. That's what it taught. Now, bringing that into the Christian life, it comes out like this. Unless we love ourselves first, we cannot love God or our neighbor as we ought. Is this true? Um, Secular psychologists no longer think, by the way, that this is true, which is why they abandon it, but many in our society still operate by it, as do many churches. What does the Bible have to say about it? Is it really true that we must learn to love ourselves before we can love others, and that all our problems really stem from a poor, low self-esteem? Well, the answer is an absolute no, and for at least three reasons. Really, that's all we have time for. (laughs) One is that there are only two commands in Matthew 22, not three. Right? We can all count. Jesus speaks of the first and then the second. He gives no third command. Second reason is that there, are no, there is no command in the entire Bible to love yourself. You can kind of throw that in the category of forgiving yourself, too. That's not in there either. You won't find it anywhere. The third reason is that Scripture assumes that we love ourselves just fine. In fact, too much. Jesus' statement in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-nine, 39, love your neighbor as yourself, takes for granted that we love ourselves just fine. And in Ephesians five, twenty-nine, Paul, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, tells husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Here's the reason. For no one ever hated his own self. That statement is an is as absolute as it gets. Now, I don't have time to examine with you some of the common instances that you might be thinking about where it would seem as though people hate themselves. But suffice it to say, the problem with people is that they, in fact, do not suffer from low self-esteem, but rather from too much self-esteem. Even those who sadly end their lives, they're in a place where they will not tolerate people treating them poorly anymore, and they fix it that way. Yes, we love ourselves just fine. Bible assumes not only that we love ourselves just fine, but I said too much, and that's where all our problems really stem from. We think of ourselves and we care for ourselves too much. Pride was the primary motivation of Satan's fall. It was the primary motivation of Adam's fall, and it stands as the number one motive behind much of our sin. And think for a moment about Jesus' gospel message Deny yourself, right? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. He said, If you deny, if you don't deny even your own self, you cannot be my disciple. It's closer to the truth that all our problems in life result really from too much self-esteem. We care too much about ourselves, what people think of us, what they're going to say about us, how they treat us, what we deserve, what we don't deserve, that we're unfairly treated, and so on. We regard what man thinks of us more than what God thinks of us. What does Paul warn in Romans 12.3? For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's not surprising to find this warning to believers in Romans in a context on interpersonal relationships. Don't be jealous. Don't be thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Love of self is a sure way to ruin your relationship with God and neighbor. So the self-esteem view says that people must love themselves first before they can love others and that all our problems stem from self, from, from esteeming ourselves too little. But God says that we must love him first, never command self-love, and says that all our problems really stem from esteeming ourselves too much. So who are you going to believe, the experts or God? Self-love cult in America had a profoundly negative impact on the church that we can see even to this day. But you can, you can keep yourselves from swallowing this lie, and practicing it with solid, a solid biblical view of love. A solid biblical view of love. So, what do you think so far about what we've said about biblical love? Good stuff. Maybe a little convicting. Maybe it hits a little too close to home for, for us. That's good. Wait. We haven't finished yet with the fruit of the Spirit called love. More to come. Father, we thank you for this time together that we can open your Word and we can turn and we can discuss things that are of such practical value for us, such importance to the, to the walk of faith this great love with which you have loved us that we have all received and that now we can, we can exercise freely and aggressively. And we pray you would find us exercising it just that way and that we would find your grace sufficient to express it in these aggressive ways that we would look to show the love of Christ and that we would pay no regard to how we are received, for we know that we are messengers of your truth. Pray that you would use us then to convey it in great ways for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.